Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Whenever I hear these stories about Jesus calling the disciples, I cannot help but go back in my memory to being a preteen elementary age kid growing up in El Campo, Texas, especially during the summer months. You know, um, that was a time, and we lived in a small enough community where um, we would spend hours outside riding our bikes, playing baseball, um, chasing birds, and just having a pretty grand time. And oftentimes our activities would last until, until sundown. And then you could hear it across the neighborhood. Pamela Sue, you and your sister, come on. Jack, grab your brother and come on, come on home. Mine was always, Joe Gale, get your sister. Come on, it's time for dinner. And you know, I have to tell you that we learned pretty early on that when the mom called, you didn't mess around. You didn't say, wait a minute. You started hauling across the neighborhood as fast as your feet could t take you and came bursting in the back door. Well, for one, you just didn't want to get in trouble. But for two, dinner was on the table, and you didn't want it to get cold. And for three, you were running, outrunning the darkness and bursting into a house full of light and comfort and security as the darkness came. I can't help but think about that when I read these call stories. Of course, as you heard this scripture read this morning, you, you're probably wondering, what on earth were those disciples thinking? What were they thinking? They dropped their nets and left everything behind them. John and James left their father standing in a boat with the hired hands. And if you're wondering about that, well, welcome to the club. Everybody is. Every commentary about this scripture I read this week talked about why. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her sermon on this scripture called Miracle on the Beach, talks about the huge miracle that happens in this story. Jesus seemingly appears out of nowhere and sees these fishermen mending their nets and, and then says two words to them, two words, says, follow me. Are, are you ready for that? And they get up all of a sudden and they're gone. They have left everything. They have dropped everything. And, and if that doesn't make you shake and quake a little, I don't know what will. I mean, so often I hear people say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want God to call me. What, what if I have to drop everything? 
leave behind everything I know. Well, I have to tell you, I think that's, that kind of calling is, is not as common as you might think it is from this story. But still, that kind of calling still happens today. And actually, that kind of calling happens to each of us at various times in our lives. The story, as it's told, tells us of a life-changing power that overcomes these disciples. Another way of looking at the passage could be to say to ourselves, no one who is called like that drops their nets and leaves everything behind without there being a good reason and without being ready to do so. I mean, unless they had some long pre-existing hunger for a different life altogether. And we can't help but wonder about those fishermen. What about it and their lives made them so prepared, so ready, so willing to hear Jesus call them and actually to follow a person they, they, they didn't even know? American theologian Ched Myers makes the case that these fishermen on the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' day were caught up in an elaborate, exploitive caste system. And that's why they were good and ready to leave it behind. Fishing was considered among the lowest professions that you could be a part of. And and so Jesus' call was to join him in ushering in a whole new day, a whole new world, a whole new way of living. Myers points out that the verb there, that they left their nets, ephemi, is used elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark. And it's used to talk about leaving behind debt, leaving behind sin, leaving behind bondage. And so Myers argues that ephemi is a jubilee verb because it's a a verb that calls about and brings forth new life and that these exploited, disenfranchised people were more than ready to follow Jesus into a new day. Well, I'm going to say the truth right here. We who live in this country called the United States of America also live in a caste system. It's been in existence for, well, since our country began. Even before the revolution, even before the Constitution. A caste system that caused some people to be slaves and others to be free. A system that we now are learning still exists in our culture today. Oh, I know, we all grew up believing that America was the place of the great, broad, middle class where everybody can succeed. And if you're white, that story works. And if you're black or a person of color, not so much. The advantages and accessing the advantages are far more difficult. So then, how do we now in this system follow God's call?
how do we even discern God's call? How do we hear God's call? And how do we follow? Jesus says simply, follow me. Two words. Part of the reason New Church adopted a call statement is because we believed that we were called. We are called. And our call statement says at the end that we will seek to follow in the way of Jesus. And I've always said that those words are easy to say, but it's a completely different thing to actually do. The sheer minimalism of Jesus' call is startling and worth thinking about. It may signal that while intellectual practice and practical life do come into play in responding to Jesus' call, in in becoming disciples or students of Jesus, they're not really the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is encountering Jesus. The heart of the matter is Jesus himself. Follow me, the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer emphasizes, is the most striking thing about it is that it is void of all content. There, there's no program here. There's no plan here. There's no persuasive set of promises here. Only a call to companionship, to closeness, to living together along the way. And I want, I, I want to say that there's some grace here in this gospel for us, even today. Because I actually think that what we hear when we read this passage, we hear the imperative. It's almost like there's an exclamation point at the end of it. Follow me. An, an instruction. A demand. But, but in fact, the words there, the Greek words, are more an invitation a compelling invitation. Consider our first lesson this morning. The poet says, there is no doctrine, but an invitation, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, there's no plan, there's no program, simply an invitation. Now remember, earlier in this gospel, Jesus had been preaching, but Jesus' sermon was slightly different than his cousin John the Baptist's sermon. If you go back a couple of Sundays ago, we hear that John the Baptist had come proclaiming a baptism of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus' sermon is a little bit different. Listen to it. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The whole realm of God, the whole realm of God has come near. Repent, turn around and go the other way. Believe in the good news. Do you hear that? From this sort of focus on sin, Jesus turns this to belief in a God of good news. The realm of God has come near. Believe, trust the good news. And maybe Jesus looked at those disciples like someone who offered them a chance to bring people into that realm of God, whose nearness Jesus had been talking about ever since Jesus had arrived in Galilee. 
that the realm of God has come near. And they wanted to be a part of that. Jesus was not commanding, but inviting and offering. Maybe there's a reason why we find Jesus in Galilee and not Jerusalem and Rome. Or not in the other great power places of the world. Jesus begins his ministry in the gospel according to Mark in Galilee. A simple place where poor people fish for a living and Jesus, who seemed to have an affection for the poor, would begin his gospel ministry among them. The truth is, Galilee is a place where most of us live, mending our nets, whatever they are. Most of us do not reside in the citadels of power or in the glare of the bright lights of history. No, we live in the Galilees of the world, mending our nets daily. And Mark, the gospel writer of the Gospel of Mark, starts in Galilee because the Galilees of this life and of the simple folks who live there are the places Jesus came for. These are the people and the places Jesus came for. And you know what? They're us, and we are them. And so when we, in the Gospel of Mark, come to the gospel's great ending and listen to the angel's words to the women now at the empty tomb. We hear the angel say, you must go to Galilee for there you will see the risen Christ. At the end of that gospel, we are being directed directly back to where Jesus wanted to be, the beginning where we are now, back to Galilee, back to the humble beginning of the gospel and the humble mundane characters who inhabit it to see through this story with new eyes. You see, once we have been to the cross, and by the way, this is the direction the gospel of Mark drives us, Once we've seen the victory of God at the empty tomb, we go back to Galilee and all it stands for to realize in a new way, in a new story, that just such a place and just such a people is what Jesus redeemed, transformed. People like you and me. You see, the victory of Easter is that the angel proclaims at the end of the story and brings us back to Galilee to realize that the cosmic victory is always and finally local. It comes to Galilee and all those who live there and is a gospel and is victory for them and for each of us. So in light of the good news, the questions become for us what are you invited to leave behind as you follow Jesus this week? And how might you be invited to move toward that in your following? God's invitation manifests itself in a thousand, a million different ways, and we respond in a thousand and a million different more ways. 
from courage to reluctance to some of us running screaming from the room. The good news is God will not let go of us. And there's at least one thread running through this all, and it's God's invitation. And God's invitation is vibrant and alive and is always on the surface of our living if we are willing to awaken and listen for it. God's invitation is frequently surprising and unpredictable, spilling over the edges of what we expected and thought were going to happen, turning upside down conventional wisdom in ways that are a little bit wild. And who doesn't like a wild ride every now and then? And who is called? Well, surprisingly, not the most capable, not the brightest and the best, but some of the lowest on the social ladder. And to what end? God God calls us so that God might save our enemies so that the world might turn upside down in a magnificent jubilee or for no apparent reason at all apart from just companionship with God. The encounter of Jesus, of the one who showed us what God look, looks, God's love looks like in human form, the mode of love that lives and walks together, a mode of supporting and being loved for each other. In our broken and broken apart world, maybe now more than ever, we might heed that vibrant, alive invitation of God to the encounter with Jesus so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Right now, in this time and place, it may be that our very lives depend on us responding. And what might happen if we had that kind of commitment? I heard a story this week. An amazing story. As it happens, there were a group of college students who were on a break from school. And as part of their break, they went on a trip to England. And while there, they visited the home of John Wesley. And if you remember, John Wesley was a charismatic Anglican priest who, because of his passion, set off a whole revival and out of that revival emerged the United Methodist Church. It was vibrant. It was alive. It was a spiritual revival that transformed the landscape. As they toured the home, these college students finally made their way to the second floor and Wesley's bedroom. There they noticed two indentions on the floor of his room next to the bed. They asked the tour guide what the indentions were, and the guide explained that they were there because that's where Wesley knelt to pray every day, sometimes for hours at a time. The tour finished up, and the class loaded the bus, but when the teacher counted, there was a student missing. The teacher went back wandered through the property, the first floor, not in the kitchen, not in the living room, finally made it up to the second floor of Wesley's bedroom. And there he found a student kneeling beside the bed in those indentions, 
with his hands raised above him. And he was praying aloud, do it again, Lord. Do it again. And use me. Use even me. The teacher walked over and gently tapped Billy Graham on the shoulder and said, we have to go now. Perhaps you don't know about the early life of Billy Graham, and regardless of what you think of his ministries and his positions on things, he was a brilliant evangelist. He changed the landscape of the United States, and we might say of even the world. But what you also probably don't know is that when he was in college at Bob Jones College, Bob Jones Sr. told him, you're about to throw your life away. At best, all you will ever amount to is a poor country Baptist preacher somewhere out in the sticks. But then he added, you have a voice that pulls. God can use that voice of yours. God can use it mightily if you will let God. And the good news of God is that we too can awaken and hear the call of Jesus. We can encounter Jesus in a way that can transform our lives and the lives of others if we will faithfully follow as if our lives depended on it. And, and it's in our first modern lesson today if you read it and ponder it, the poet says, Jesus preaches no creed but offers a relationship. Do you hear that? Jesus does not discuss theology but practices a way of living. Jesus offers no reward but his presence. Jesus offers the paradox of the labor that is rest, the yoke that is freedom, the burden that is light. Jesus' word is not an order, a threat, a pronouncement, but a promise. An opening, a desire for us, come to me. An invitation into light itself, into the light of God. So may our prayer this day be, do it again, God. Do it again. Use me, even me. Amen.